0: Having finished the retreat of Awakening of the Spirit, and um, after two weeks ago having um, spoken about practicing with love, practicing with aspiration, keeping this spirit alive, and then together with that uh, speech we spoke a little bit about the esoteric Elements which are contained in the Christian practices, like trying to interpret from a yogic standpoint some of the <coughs> things in the Christian tradition, I thought for today to stay on the line of the same enthusiasm, aspiration, spirit, and to stay together with the heart to a large extent, and thus to move to different traditions. If I gave examples of things which are done in Christianity, I would prefer to share with you some words from the Sufi tradition, from the Indian Bhakti tradition, uh, both to see the universal aspect of this spiritual aspiration, as well as to see the differentiation and the different aspects which exist there. That's why I intend, first of all, to comment... Some of them don't need much comment, and actually, the very clear-cut ones, I have, um, I didn't even mark them. <clears throat> Although it would be beautiful, of course, to share with you some fundamental statements. These are quotes from the writings of Mevlana Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi, the 12th century Rumi, founder of um, um, amazing orientations, amazing lineages within the Sufi mysticism, within Islam. And Rumi is recognized all over the spiritual world as being a man who understood the heart, the aspiration, who understood the search for the divinity. And that's why with him we discover many ideas which are a bridge between the love of God and the aspiration of the Indian Bhakti yogis, as well as the things from the Western mysticism of the heart, especially in the form of Christ mysticism. And um, I'm not intending to read far from it, all this booklet of it. I have selected a few sayings. I'm interested both in enjoying the aspiration and the inspiration which they give, but at the same time I'm interested to see the analogies and see some of the things as they happen in yoga. First, which I have selected here, is the statement in which Rumi says that you become a slave to a man of enlightened heart is better for you then you should walk upon the crown of the head of kings. And that, of course, is a radical statement because it refers to the fundamental values of life. If you become the master of kings because to walk on the crown of head of kings is like you become the conqueror of kings, even if not in a military way, in a moral way, or subtle way or some indirect way you walk on the crown of the head of kings that has so many it leads us to so many things because the kings themselves are not omnipotent in any way today you can imagine like what does Rumi speak about today there are many kings and queens and they don't hold any real power beyond a certain level. And you would say that, for example, the financial people that control the money of the world, they control all these puppet kings and queens. So they are walking on the crown of the head of kings. This quest for worldly power. And Rumi says that you become a slave nobody wants to become a slave no but it is exactly the example which Jesus gives it G- Jesus says come to me and take upon you my yoke yoke like a cow is wearing a yoke on its shoulders it's a burden and it's a harness and it means a form of slavery so Jesus says come Unto me, come to me and take upon you my yoke. Because there is a yoke. Jesus says, I want you to be celibate. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. Like he has some very clear requirements. Starting with the very, very great ones. Which he considers to be the highest of the commandments. And Jesus says, so if you come to me, if you follow my path. You are a slave in a way. You cannot say, I am me, I am free, and I do whatever I want, whatever Jesus says. It doesn't work that way. In the moment when you assumed to take upon the message of Jesus, then automatically you have to follow some requirements. And you are not free in the uh, usual meaning of that word, in this absolutistic Uh, liberty in ridiculous, uh, ridiculous understanding of the word. But Jesus says, come unto me and take my yoke, for my yoke is light. And he says words which show like the world is an even heavier yoke. It just gives you the impression that you are free and you do whatever you want. But you are not free and you don't do everything which you want because you are subjected to maya, to illusion. Because you are subjected to your desires which blind you completely like a moth around a lamp. Hypnotize you completely with this illusion, with this Fata Morgana of the world. And then you think you are free but this freedom is not a real freedom. It's actually a slavery to illusion desires, the five senses. So Jesus says, take my yoke. Because my yoke can seem that it's a yoke because I'm asking some very clear things. You know, like if you enter a monastery, if you go in an ashram, if you go into a Zen meditation uh, temple or something, you know, there will be a yoke. And Jesus says, take my yoke because my yoke is light. He means comparatively. You foolishly think that if you have this superficial Zvadistanistic freedom, I am me, I am free, then automatically this makes you free. But actually you are a prisoner exactly like a animal in a zoo. You know, we can say I'm free, but he's actually in a cage or in a reservation of some sort and that's not really the actual freedom. That is why as Jesus says, take my yoke because my yoke is light compared with what the world is offering, which is delusion and defeat. Then uh, Rumi puts it in a similar way. He says that you become a slave to a man of enlightened heart. That's all the culture which the Sufis have about their elders whom they respect or of course the confessors and um, elders in the Christian mysticism or the gurus in the Tibetan and Indian uh, spiritual traditions, all of them point to this because uh, ultimately the goal of your soul, the goal of your existence is to reach that freedom. So if you give yourself to Jesus, you are more free than if you say, I'm me, I'm free. Because Jesus is doing everything in his capacity to make you free, to set you free, to make you find yourself. While the world is a Maya, and this Maya, while it has divine connotations under the aspect of Shakti in Tantra, nevertheless it's a Maya. Nature may hide God, but when you see a National Geographic video, there you see a lion Killing a deer and tearing it apart. And that nature which you see with the lion killing the antelope. Is created by God. It's a divine creation. And in that divine creation there is blood. And gore. And killing. It's not a perversion of nature that lions kill gazelles. They are built for it. And they are built by the morphogenetic fields that have created this universe. And therefore, they are built by the cosmic mind, they are built by the dharma, by the will and intelligence of the creative forces. And that's why Maya, even when Maya, those of you who studied some Mahavidya tradition, some Tantra tradition, you would say, hey, Maya is... uh, Bhuvaneshwari, no, it's a Shakti, it's one of the ten Mahavidyas. There is one of the ten Mahavidyas which is nicknamed Maya because she represents Maya, the closest. Yeah, but this doesn't mean that if it's Bhuvaneshwari, she's going to have mercy on you, exactly as if a lion catches you alone in the savannah, it might not have any mercy on you if it's hungry and if it's used to attack human beings. So therefore, (coughs) what I'm trying to say here is, That both Jesus and Rumi here and many others, they warn the spiritual seeker that sometimes the glory, the fame, the worldly power that some people say, I'm walking upon the crown of the heads of kings. Rumi says, and so what? You'd better be the slave of a man of enlightened heart. If you give yourself to Ramakrishna, you're better off than if you walk on the crown of the head of kings. It's only the Maya which makes your ego feel more puffed up and better in the second of these instances. No, because uh, in that way, you are actually missing your goal. You are forgetting your goal. In another wonderful quote, Rumi preserving the path of the heart. Most of what I read here is God seen from the standpoint of the heart. Rumi says, Grief is better than the empire of the world, so that you may call unto God in secret. There is a medieval European philosopher who said, Those who suffer remember. It is a perversion of the human nature <clears throat> generated by the functions of the mind and ego. That when people are happy, they don't think about divine things. On the contrary, when they suffer, then they realize how empty life is and how many things are not true, and then they start referring to divinity. Of course, the tantric tradition says that's just a perversion of the human mind. You could think about God while you make love. And you are in a pre-orgasmic condition and there you could call upon God and pray and it would become amazing. It would become an amazing path. But people very seldom do that. As I've said so many times, when you look at recorded images of people having sex, most people think it's the empire of the devil most people in porn movies in sex images they have grimaces on their face like they are worshiping the devil almost nobody is in a state of prayer no it's like when a man takes a woman and says yeah take it like why do i have to do this you know why is it uh, ugly in any way you know when i could give myself to you like it's a gift from god like it's something amazing No, why do I need to drag it through the mud and through all that? It is a perversion of the human nature because of the ego that when we are in a good place, we want to enjoy that goodness all alone. It's all for me. I'm greedy and insatiable of the joys of life. And then it's me. Then I become egoistic, and I think nobody is like me, and I'm puffed up, and who can... Then I'm confident that I can conquer the whole world, and that, you know, I'm I'm walking on the clouds of the sky. And then suddenly I'm hit with something, either it's a disease, a pain, a tragedy, some loss, and then suddenly I start to remember God. I got a pain, I fall on my knee, and I hurt myself, and I'm saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, you know? It's like, unfortunately, human beings react more spiritually in grief than in satisfaction, because in satisfaction they focus more on the ego, exception made of some tantric practitioners and others, who found a way to live the spiritual life with joy, with pleasure, without, however, forgetting... What the aspiration of the heart is. This situation, it's a parenthesis, but in the good style of Osho Rajneesh, it reminds me of a crazy joke. And um, I usually don't say many jokes in my satsangs, but this one uh, is very much on the point of what Rumi says here. Because this joke uh, shows the situation of a priest and of a taxi driver who reached to the pearly gates. They reached to St. Peter's judgment gates. And the St. Peter greets the taxi driver and he says, oh yeah, I know, you just come in, it's okay, and so on. Then the priest is next in line and Peter says, no, no, you don't come here. You're just going down there to the dark side of uh, the things. And the priest is puzzled and says, before I go, at least clarify. It sounds like a total injustice. I have been a priest of God and I spoke about God to people. I prayed to God. And this guy is a taxi driver and we all know that he must have been drinking when he was not driving, when he was not on the job, and that he was cursing and swearing and driving aggressively and breaking rules. And he's like, what is the justice that he goes in and I don't? At which Peter says, yeah, the justice is the following. When you were talking about God, people were falling asleep. While when he was driving his car, people were praying to God. (laughs) So in the same way, it's a perversion of the human nature that people pray to God more when they suffer than when they are in a good place. And that's why uh, Rumi seizes on this and he says, grief is better than the empire of the world. If you have the rulership of the world, like most rulers did, you feel so strong and so fulfilled that your ego is dominant and then you forget about your quest, your quest which is to reach to the essence. And that's why it says grief is better than the empire of the world so that you may call unto God in secret. There is a modern days Christian saint, I think last century if I remember correctly, in Mount Athos called Silwan, today he is Saint Silwan and Saint Silwan of Athos he had a dictum which very few people could understand one of his mantras, one of his advices which he repeated constantly he said, keep your mind in hell no. By this he meant if you see the real frightening and painful things of life, then you will be very motivated, scared to death even. You'll be very motivated to turn to the divinity. Keep your mind to hell so that even your mind is not presenting too much attractivity. Even your mind will be like, oh God, terrible, awful. And then my only refuge is the infinite the Eternal, the Absolute, the Spirit. And he insists on the same theme. There is another saying, probably contingent to this one, where he explains, the call of the griefless is from a frozen heart. When one has no grief, when one is having this levity, a sort of a superficial joyfulness, the call of the griefless is from a frozen heart. The call of the grieving one is from rapture. It is incredible indeed that for many people who pray in a humble way, out of a lack, like, I miss God, I lack God. God, when will you show yourself to me? When will I discover the divine nature? When will I receive the grace of the Buddha? Whatever form it takes, it comes from a lack. From like, there is something which I want more than food and drink. There is something which I want more than sleep. And sometimes it seems like I want it more than my life. Then there is a sort of uh, intrinsical grief. Not to mention that sometimes... That grief is caused by humbleness and other characteristics of the heart. The famous prayer of the heart, it's the most famous prayer in the whole Christianity. And definitely it's the most famous prayer in the Eastern forms of Christianity. In the Orthodox Christianity from Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, Russia and a few other lands uh, which are contained into this. The prayer of the heart has a lot of grief. In it, produced by humbleness, because it says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God. And now comes the sad part, like the first part is exalting God. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Like, why should you have mercy on me if I'm walking on the tops of the heads of kings of the world, you know? Then I don't need anybody to have mercy on me because I think I'm cool. I think I'm the greatest in the world, you know. So if I ask, have mercy on me, it means I'm in a hole. And not only that, it says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like ultimately, I confess (coughs) that I'm a sinner. Compared to perfection, which doesn't exist in the physical world, every person, starting with a so-called saint and finishing with the last sinner, In the scale of the society, every person is still a sinner. That is not a negative self-suggestion. Like even a great yogi like Yogananda was assisting a Christian service somewhere. And the priest invited them, and he says, all ye sinners come forth. And he said, but I'm not a sinner. According to St. Gregory Palamas... Even Yogananda can call himself a sinner in front of God. Like, hey, Yogananda, look at your big belly. You are stuffing your face with cakes, right? So you are a sinner, although you say you are a big yogi. No, nobody is perfect when taken millimetrically. When taken millimetrically, everybody is flawed somewhere, somehow. Everybody can say, I'm a sinner. No? Jesus, for three years and a half, he acted perfectly. He was like Mr. 100,000 Volts. He had no day, no night, no break, no flaw, no failure, no weakness, no waxing and waning and nothing. He was like full on. Maybe Jesus, because he is an avatar of God, can be considered the perfect manifestation in the physical world. But everybody else... No, that's why the prayer of the heart itself is a prayer which comes from humbleness. It's Lord, have mercy on me and moreover, a sinner. On me, a sinner. I declare myself a sinner because that keeps me in a state of humbleness, of humility. No? And then, this prayer is uh, so It contains a grief. No, because I need mercy. I'm in need of mercy. Can I just flex my muscle and get eternal life? I'm not that powerful. I'm bending my knee and I'm asking, please have mercy on me. Give me grace. Only by grace I can transcend from being a finite creature to reaching eternity. And that's why... Even in the prayer of the heart, also because it reaches Anahata so much, and the path of Rumi is so much aware of Anahata, that he says the call of the griefless is from a frozen heart, while the call of the grieving one is from rapture. There is a rapture, and at the same time there is meekness. In when the prayer of the heart is worthy of its name, and it actually becomes the prayer of the heart, then it is accompanied by a torrent of tears. The people who reach in the true state of the prayer of the heart, they, they shed tears of devotion. This is considered it's con- in, in Christianity when people pray and they are not hysterical, they don't cre- scream or get hysterical, but they are in this state of rapture, peace, and at the same time they shed tears, which are very calm tears. It's like, you know, it's not the kind of Japanese tears where you go like, look in Japanese movies, especially older ones, and see how Japanese people are depicted of crying. Or it's crocodile tears, hysterical, European type of crying, and so on. No, the, the mystical cry which appears in the prayer. No. When the prayer of the heart reaches its true status, it is rapture, it's bliss, because you don't cry being sad. You cry because it's too much. It's too much love. It's too much gratitude. It's overflowing, and all you can do is that the tears are flowing, and it's a mixture of bliss, and at the same time this humbleness, which Yogananda himself hits in some of his, he says, there is a prayer of Yogananda, there is an expression where he says, God, give me the smallest place in your heart, give me the most humble place in your heart. Like, I don't need to be the king of Shambhala, I don't need to be with the angels and archangels. give me a, a corner, I'm a miserable little creature, I just deserve a corner, even a corner of your presence, will be an undeserved gift. It will overwhelm me. You know, from the heart, this is how it goes. I don't want anything. I just want the tiniest thing. Even that one is like too good for me. St. Peter of Damascus says real humility means that a human being feels that he is in debt to the whole world. You owe to everybody. You are like, you know, you, you, you feel like bowing down in front of every person, you know. I am smaller than you. I am a sinner compared to you. You are great. You have aspiration. You have heart. You know, I'm, you know, I feel so humble in front of everybody. This is the mark of the real greatness in Anahata. And the prayer of the heart, when it reaches the heart, it produces this. And it is as Rumi says, the call of the griefless is from a frozen heart. The previous stage to the prayer of the heart is called in the Christian theory of prayer, is called the prayer of the mind, and it's from a frozen heart. It doesn't make you cry, it doesn't make you shudder, it doesn't make you ecstatic. Like in your mind, you say and you understand what you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you say it and you understand, and you even theologically agree, yes, Nobody is perfect. I am, metaphorically speaking, a sinner somewhere, somehow. There are flaws, inevitable, in every human being. So I'm praying to God, Jesus, you who are God, you who are perfect, give me your grace, give me your mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's from the mind. I don't shed tears. I'm not in ecstasy. It didn't reach my core. I understand it. And Rumi says... That prayer of a person who has no grief is coming from a frozen heart. Your mind can say it, but the feeling, the feeling of it is not there. Says Rumi another statement. This world is like a mountain and our action is the shout. The echo of the shouts comes back to us. This is a beautiful expression of the law of karma, the law of action and reaction, expressed in an environment like the Sufi mysticism, where the law, the word karma does not exist, and the law of karma, which is a Hindu Buddhistic heritage, does not exist as such. But as you can see, the idea exists, exactly as Jesus says, he who sows a rain or a a rain, he reaps a storm. You know, like there will be action and reaction and the reaction goes against. It's like the boomerang effect. Here, so the law of karma is understood, although it is not called the law of karma because the word karma is a Sanskrit word and as such it exists, known as such, in the Vedic, Hindu and then Buddhist environment where Buddha kept it, he considered it's a very good concept and it illustrates our relationship with reality. So here, Rumi simply says, the world is like a mountain. And what we do is like when somebody shouts. Whenever you do something, you emit karma. You emit something. Your action produces an effect. And that effect will come back. The world Under one form or another, he doesn't bother to to explain how. He just simply tells you the final effect is that the world is like a mountain which bounces back an echo. You shout, and the echo of the shout comes back to us. This is a beautiful illustration of the universality of some principles of spirituality, that even Rumi who... Kidan does not convert to Buddhism. He does say, by the way, I discovered the great idea in the Buddhist thinkers. So why don't we Muslims uh, take that? No, he rephrases it. There is a way of bringing it up in his environment, in his culture. And that was an illustration, a beautiful creativity. Uh, it was perhaps Ramakrishna who was the ultimate champion In bringing religions and spiritualities together. And um, here we see that with Rumi it's the same. He says in another one. What is (coughs) this world? To be forgetful of God. That's his definition of the world. Of course Rumi can be pardoned for not being a tantric guru. Because his metaphysics is not like Abhinavagupta. Abhinavagupta would not say, What is this world? In a poem of Abhinavagupta, it says, Oh Shiva, what is this world? It's actually the poem is not of Abhinavagupta. I forgot if it's with Paladeva or Laleshvari, it doesn't matter. It's one of the great mystics of Kashmiri Shaivis. And they say, Oh Shiva, what, what is this world? What are all these beings and things? And he says, they are your eyes. Like Shiva is present into everything. In every creature, in every being. That's a monistic view of the world, which pertains to the highest lineages of Tantric teachings and to gurus like Abhinava Gupta. The Sufi mysticism of Rumi is a mysticism which contains God and the devil. Salvation and perdition. He is still in a partisan world. And as I explained so many times, don't think that dualistic is wrong and monistic is right, or the other way around. In Christianity and Sufism, monism is a blasphemy. To say, I am Shiva, is like, you are dead. And, on the contrary, uh, dualism is the way it is expressed. Every religion and every spirituality has created its own environment. And as I teach in the metaphysical workshop where we analyze all the forms of spirituality and things like monism, dualism, why do some people put it this way and some people put it that way, where we try to explain all the metaphysical tendencies and teachings in yoga and in uh, the surrounding spiritualities, there we say it very clearly that most of the popular religions, most of the religions that have tens of thousands of adherents and more, millions, Um, perhaps up till billions nowadays, all of them use a dualistic simplified metaphysics. Because it is impossible for a person who is a convert into a religion without anything more than just some basic theological indoctrination, it is impossible for such a person to understand monism. If a man like Albert Einstein is turning into religion, and he did a lot, then a man of the genius and intelligence of Albert Einstein, who has access to several religious teachings simultaneously, might conceive a concept like that of monism. But otherwise, the average person is far, far, far from that. And that's why Jesus and the Rumi and so many others, Ramakrishna and So many others, they cannot teach monism. (coughs) We teach monism in Agama, but only in the advanced levels. And we give a taste of it, (coughs) into the introduction to Kashmiri Shaivism and others, simply because of this. Kashmiri Shaivism, which is the The heart, the essence of the teachings in uh, our tantric tradition here in Agama. Nevertheless, that is a privileged teaching. Which is possible after years and years of meditation, kundalini rising, aspiration, (coughs) sublimation and generally (coughs) spiritual work. And thus, be aware of the fact that a man like Rumi, following in the good steps of all the traditions, he stays on dualism. What is this world, says Utpaladeva. It's your eyes. Like he sees Shiva even in this world. Lucky. Because then it means he did not forget about God. But Rumi looking at the society around him and the world he lives, he says, what is this world? And he answers, to be forgetful of God. That's what the world does. No? Anyway, people say, agama is like a bubble. One of the characteristics of it is that here, people remind you of the spiritual principles. Your teachers, the satsangs, the Q&As and everything, is reminding to us, Of the spiritual dimension of the human life. That that has to be in the core. Yes it's important to get healthy by doing yoga. It's important to feel good in your body. And to be fit or comfortable. It is important to have a good daily life. So that you use the mega power of yoga for getting out of depression, for uh, controlling your mind and emotions, for a million and million other things which you do. Getting more courage from Manipura or getting more intellectual power from Ajna Chakra or whatever. So it's good, but these are all wrapped around the core of our being. Because if you just want to get more courage for some job interview, and at the same time you forgot who you are and what the real quest is then that the fact that yoga helped you to have a bit more courage and get some job <clears throat> 10 years later you'll probably be agonizing from the same job you know and you'll not realize that things are built on a foundation which is unhealthy so says rumi what is this world to be forgetful of God. Almost, he says, if you would be remembering God, this world would like disappear. It would become transparent. You would see through it. Uh, maybe, he says, then this world does become God. Because there is a streak of monism in most of the Sufi teachings in Islam, which makes it so heretical for the rest of the Islamic world. No, So there is something there. He means something. But... As long as things are as they are, what is this world? This world, he defines it, is to be forgetful of God. It is not merchandise and silver and weighing scales and women. Because people say, what is this world? Oh, this world is merchandise, silver, weighing scales, women. Like people describe the glamour, the attraction, the Fata Morgana, the mirage. No? but Rumi contradicts, he says it's not that the problem is not that they are he being a man, that they are women and silver and this, that's not the problem the problem is the forgetfulness, to be forgetful of God Ramakrishna was even moving to the red light district in Calcutta and when he saw prostitutes decorated for their job he fell at their feet and touched their feet and worshipped them as if they were goddesses For him, they were not uh, decent women and indecent women, not worthy of... Everybody was a goddess. He could see. So although he was in the red light district, he was not going to buy sex. He was there worshipping, trying to see the divine. says... Rumi somewhere else, continuing his words of inspiration. Oh, blessed is he that deems his early days an opportunity to be seized and pays his debt. So many sub-statements in this. He says, blessed is he who pays his debt. Like, ultimately, reaching God, waking up, is a debt. That's the only thing which you owe to the cosmic consciousness, you owe to the cosmic consciousness, please, please, please wake up. The Buddhas of the past, present and future are waiting for you up there to wake up. Shambhala is waiting for you to wake up. The angels and the seraphim are waiting for you to wake up. And the divine consciousness has launched you into manifestation so that you can remember and wake up. So what do you owe to the creator? What do you owe to the universe? Just one thing. Wake up. Come back. Awaken. And he calls this paying your debt. He says the human being actually has a debt. We are not completely set free. We are running in a circle. And sooner or later we are going to come back. Sooner or later we are going like the prodigal son from the parable of Jesus, we are going to be coming back. So he says, blessed is he that deems his early days an opportunity to be seized. Like of course he says, when you are young, and you have ojas, and you are healthy, then you can seize the opportunity, because you have more power, you are more motivated. When you don't, You are wasting his time. I think Yogananda or his Guru Yuktajuar, I forgot who of them, says a dangerous, a threatening sentence, which is not hundred percent true, but it is true to a large extent. He says, if you don't seek for God in the spring of your life, which means when you are young, he will not come to you in the winter. Like many people say, I'm going to frolic around until I'm 65. And then I start looking for enlightenment. The efforts required for this are bigger. In the lives of the 84 Mahasiddhas of India and Tibet, of the Himalayas, there is the life of one Mahasiddha who had reached a state of senility. He already was touched by some senile degeneration. And then he found out about the spiritual quest. And somehow this man had such a tremendous willpower... And self-discipline. That being already degenerated. Like you can say he had the early stages of Alzheimer's or something. And he started practicing from morning till evening. He went nuts. Like some of you will start doing one hour of shirshasana. Four hours of pranayama. You know like the whole caboodle. Full on. Not only that he eliminated the senility. But he reached enlightenment. So the statement of Yogananda is not absolutely true. It's only relatively true. He says if you don't seek for God in the spring of your life. He will not come to you in the winter. Which means all the masters advise. Try to do some spiritual work since you are young. Because that's when you plant the seeds. You have to plant the seeds in the spring, so by the autumn they give already fruits. Everybody is advising you start early. Adi Shankaracharya started practicing spirituality at the age of 12 or 13. And he reached Samadhi when he was 16. At the age of 16. He's one of the earliest enlightened beings in the history of Indian spirituality. No? So when you are a teenager... You have so much energy, so much purity, so much enthusiasm that it will, your Kundalini will rise almost immediately if you tickle yourself a little bit, if you stimulate yourself a little bit. Then in your 20s, you are still very fresh and exploding with energy. In your 30s, you are still healthy and have vitality. It's a little bit less. You start becoming a bit more cynical because you say, eh, I've learned my lessons, you know. Not everything is the way you thought it is, you know. The person who thinks like this is about God cautious also is like, "Should I give myself to God? Come? When you are 15 years old, like Romeo and Juliet, you fall in love with God like Romeo fell with Juliet, you know? Then it's easy to give yourself, because you are candid. There is a no, so the energy is so much bigger. that's why it's good to do things when you are. Young says, Rumi, Blessed is he that deems his early days an opportunity to be seized and pays his debt. I don't want to discourage those of you who started later, but it depends then more of your self discipline, willpower, really setting the wheels into motion. When you are so young, you just say, oh, I love Jesus and so on. And suddenly you get goosebumps and all sorts of reactions and so on because you are a bit crazy. When you are 60 years old, you have to do one hour of pranayama and you have to do one hour of trataka. And then you are in the state where you can say, oh, now I start feeling that something is more work. There is more warming up to do. Simply because the conditions of the mind and Oja's general energy levels are a bit lower. So of course, um, and he says, Blessed he that deems his early days an opportunity to be seized and pays his debt. Interesting angle. When you do spirituality, only then and then you are paying your debt. That's the moral debt of the human being to actually stop being an animal and becoming conscious, becoming a human being. Beautiful statement, just giving faith, where he says, when you have acted loyally in keeping your covenant with God, God will graciously keep his covenant with you. Actually, some mystics are much more generous than Rumi on this one. And they say, when you make one step Towards the Absolute, the Absolute makes a hundred steps towards you. You can never, it's not a democracy, God is not trying to match you. The only thing which matters is that you show a sign of goodwill. When you go into higher states of consciousness, especially on Ajna Chakra, you notice that this universe has a highly symbolic nature. A lot of things that we do are highly symbolic. Because we can't actually do some things. We just do something which is a symbol of what is to be done. And that symbol communicates to the cosmic intelligence, to the cosmic mind, what was intended. The world is based on archetypes, symbols and other such elements which are the big things which are moving in the collective subconscious mind and in the mind of God, in the cosmic mind. And that is why um, this statement is to be surpassed. It, It sounds like you do something, God will match it. Actually, the divine consciousness does much, much more because grace is an immeasurable force. We cannot match grace in any way. Grace overmatches us a a gazillion fold. There is not even a way of measuring how much more is contained in grace. So that's why it's very important that we give a symbol. We give a sign of what we want. I remember one of my gurus in my early years speaking to a person who said that they could not do spiritual practice? And of course, the guru knew that this was a demonic blockage and that, you know, the people find excuses all the time. And then he was trying to demonstrate to that person how much is in the mind and it's not that, oh, I'm busy, I have a job, I have no time, I have to put bread and butter on my table, I have three children, I have, you know, you always find excuses for this. And this guru gave him, he said, look, I want to give you a simple thing like you say you cannot i am not going to contradict you i'm just going to ask you to do something symbolic just to tell to your subconscious mind and implicitly to the cosmic intelligence just to tell them i am weak i am incapable but look i try i try i do something i cannot do as much as milarepa but look i do something so he simply said i give you this discipline You take a needle, a sewing needle, a normal needle, and a piece of thread, a sewing thread. And you simply take it and put it through the eye of the needle. Put that thread through the eye of the needle and prepare it like you are wanting to manually sew something with it. And then he said, after you put it in and prepare, take it out and start all over. And you do this 30 times. This is yoga For the incapable, like you are telling me you can't do trataka, you can't do laya yoga, you can't use mantras, you can't do this. Put a thread through a needle. Because at least you are giving to your subconscious mind the signal. That's what I can do. I am such a weakling that I can only put a thread through a needle 30 times over. Now that's the tapas given by my guru. Guess what? He couldn't do it more than 10 days. He couldn't. After 10 days he gave up. Then he could see, it's not about the fact that you don't have time or you cannot. You say, oh my God, I already ate because I came from a job and I was stressed out and I came hungry like a wolf. And before I was thinking to do some Danurasana or some Udhyana (laughs) Banda, I binged on some food and now I'm on a full stomach. Yeah, even on a full stomach you can put a thread through a needle 30 times. That's your yoga, a thread through a needle. He didn't do it. He didn't do it because it was not about the job and the stressful life. It's about demons in your head. It's about things which keep you from doing that. No, that's, that's the problem of it really. So that's why, no, it's... This covenant with God involves only us giving a signal. Krishna is telling to Arjuna, Oh Arjuna, give me a gift. Suddenly he comes one day and he says, "Give me a gift." And Arjuna says, "Where should I give you a gift?" And uh, Krishna says, "It doesn't have to be an expensive gift or something." He doesn't use the word symbol, but he means it's like a symbol. He says, "Give me some. Give me a tulsi leaf. This is the holy basil from India." He says, "Take a tulsi leaf and give it to me." No. And Kri- Arjuna still is in. He catches him in a very profane mood, and uh, he's not in meditation or something. And Arjuna said, but why? You are my friend. You know, it's like, why do you ask me to give you a gift? And Krishna says, because your mind is not open right now to receive anything from me. And I've got a lot to give to you. And if you don't give me something, even symbolically, a leaf from a tree, you will not be able to receive my gift. Because you are like shielding yourself in an armor. Because your mind says, I don't deserve to give. I don't deserve to receive because I didn't give. So give me a leave. And then your subconscious mind will say, yeah, now I can have something in exchange. That's why you have to give something to God even if it's symbolic. Give a leave to God. and Then God can give you grace. But remember, God cannot give you grace when you don't act. Because then it will be a tyranny. It will be imposition. God will say, I know better than you do, now take some grace. Yes, thank you. Grace is good anyway. But it was not asked for. And then what's the use of the whole of the whole circus? Then why does the whole circus exist? If willy nilly, whatever you do, either you do this or that, God is going to give you grace. It's an imposition. It's a it's a concentration camp. It's not freedom. That's why it is imperatively necessary, this is one of the necessities of this existence, of this world, of this universe. That things cannot be given to you without your request. spiritual things. Karma is given to you anyway, because the karma is something which you have created. You broke the leg of somebody, now you can expect in one year, in five years, or in 500 years, your own leg will be broken. Maybe not by the same person. But by mother nature. By the mountain. The, you, the world is like a mountain. And it bounces back at you. No, So the karma is already on its way. You have caused it. And now it's on its trajectory. The boomerang is returning back to you sooner or later. But here we're not talking about karma. Which is stuffed down your throat willy nilly. Here we're talking about the divine gift. The grace. Grace. The best things In this existence, they cannot be given to you without the minimalistic gesture that you say, please give them to me. Please give me something. Then when you have done this simple gesture, you have actually opened the door. And when the door is open, then something can happen. And that's why God will keep his covenant with you. Because the Divine Consciousness has a purpose. I don't know if you ever thought, because people say, why did God create the world? People who are unhappy, depressed, say, I wish God would have never created the world. That's because you, egoistically, are fucked up and you are in a painful part of your life. And then you say, God, uh, no, I don't like all these things. You don't like it, but right now there are probably hundreds of people who have an orgasm right this second. So they enjoy themselves. For them, it's a good world. you know. So it's like you don't like it, but that's an egoistic evaluation. you know? And other people can have a day, the day of their life. They can have the time of their life. You know? So therefore, people are saying, why? Why all this? But you realize the universe is created with a purpose, which the Hindus call the Dharma. There is a Dharma. We can call it in Christianity, the will of God. There is a meaning in the whole thing. And on this planet, there appeared life. And there appeared animals. And there appeared human beings. So they are here with a purpose. No? And therefore, if you are here for a purpose, it means God has a plan. Somewhere, somehow. And thus, in that plan, there is an intention for you, to get a lot of presence. There is a lot of growth. There is a lot of knowledge. There is a lot of enlightenment, which is for you. But then, you know, you have to be there. Mary of Egypt, Saint Mary of Egypt, who spent 30 years alone in the wilderness, when she was asked by, I forgot his name, Zenobius or some... A fellow who found her, a man found her shortly before her death and it is supposed that she prayed to God and God wanted that somebody that this woman should not die without witnessing. Like the history of humanity benefited because somebody found Mary, not Virgin Mary, Mary of Egypt and this Mary of Egypt she managed to tell her story. And now I'm telling you a part of her story, you know. And if this guy wouldn't have found her, nobody would have known the story of Mary of Egypt. So it's supposed that it's by divine will that this guy stumbled over her. And he witnessed several miracles, like this woman was a force of nature, was something inimaginable. And then he asked her to bless, convinced that indeed she is the real deal. She asked her to bless, and she said, are you crazy? You are a priest, you know, you give blessings. You know, I'm just a woman living in the desert, are you crazy? No, and he said, no, 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 don't bullshit me. Like, you know how you holy people are, modest and humble and so on. He said, give me a blessing, because you are the one who floats in the mid-air and does things. You know, you are the chosen one, you know, I like, can see on you. know, Like, don't give me this crap, you know, just give me a blessing. And then she stood up. She raised her arms to heaven and she said, Blessed be God who loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation. This is She started the blessing by first blessing God. And then she could give a blessing in the name of God. So she started by praising God. But her conclusion after 30 years in the desert, naked, she had no more clothes. Scorched by the sunshine in the desert of Palestine, her conclusion was, Blessed be God, who loves the human being, like God is not neutral to you. God loves you, which so many mystics have said. So God is proactive towards you. Because why? Because you are created with a purpose, you are part of the plan. You are, if you want a cynical view, you are the puppets of God. Of course he loves his puppets, because he created them to enjoy the game. So, God who loves the human beings, and too, wishes for their salvation. Like God, if you ask God, what's what's my debt to you? What do you want from me? The The indirect answer of God, which comes through Mary of Egypt, is, I want you to be enlightened. I want you to become a Buddha. I want you to wake up. That's the only thing I want from you. Blessed be God who loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation. God is not neutral. There is a 51% leaning on one side. And that wish is, God wishes for your salvation. That is why this is important. In, in, in understanding, in seeing this, you know, that is God has a covenant with you. He wants to give it to you. But it cannot be given to you when you are reckless and indifferent. Because then it becomes a rape. God rapes you. It cannot be. It has to come as a result of a quest. And it cannot be a quest like, oh, you know what, Swami was really humoristically inspiring me tonight. As I go to Seven Eleven while I buy myself a chocolate, I'm also saying, God, and by the way, if you really love me and wish for it, now it's the time, you know, give it to me. It, it cannot be done ridiculously, pathetically, as a sort of uh, a demonic provocation. Let, let's see if you really exist, hit me, you know, with it. You don't even believe. You are cynical. You are, no, you are impure and you do it just to provoke. Doesn't work that way. It has to be 100% sincere, present, there. in, in the moment when it is, what did Mary of Egypt know any prayer? Mary of Egypt was a woman that had a, was a prostitute for 17 years and she had a huge shock when she felt the spiritual power that was forbidding her to come close to Jesus in a worship place. And then she entered into a sort of cold turkey. Like she said, My life must be really dirty. Uh, you know, until then she couldn't see it. She lived with the feeling that, hey, I sell my body, I get some money, it's fun, it's like, you know, I live in parties all day long and so on, it's okay. And then she suddenly got an alarm bell, rang, you know, it's like, what are you doing? And then out of that shock, she entered into a shock, and out of that shock she ran in the desert. And then nobody saw her for 30 years after that. Like when this guy found her, she must have been, I don't know, 67 years old. She spent 37 years doing the oldest job in the world. And another 30 years doing prayer and repentance and asceticism. You know, what, what was she eating in the desert? Can you imagine her diet in the desert? You know? Like living in the desert. Almost nothing. Some leaves. Some cactus thorns. You know, Whatever she could find in the desert. You know? and, you know, and then when she was asked to give her final blessing. She said, blessed be God who loves. He said, God loved me that kicked me in the ass. And made me wake up and realize that I'm wasting my life. Actually, the divine consciousness always has, you know, gives you a signal if possible. And if you react to it, if you don't react in this life, it's not a big deal, you'll react in the next life. If you are willing to wait, Shakti is willing to wait as well. Shakti has all eternity. You, as a limited human being, you think, oh, I've got 30 more years to go, I've been this, you know, you are impatient. So it's more urgent for you than for Kali, for the mother of the universe. The mother of the universe says, oh, I gave you a little hint, apparently you want to keep sleeping. Sure. No? It's like the Ramakrishna parable where the child tells to the mother, mother, wake me up when I'm hungry so that you can feed me. The mother laughs, she said, my dear, when you'll be hungry, hunger itself will wake you up. No, like, I don't need to wake you up when you are hungry. I don't even know when you are hungry. But you know, no? So God can give you as many signals as you want. If you are not hungry, you'll not react. And then the divine consciousness can say, okay, I can wait. I can wait infinitely. I can wait a million years if necessary. Can you? If you want to wait, wait. You know, the divine consciousness is, but you have a covenant. The, 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 conscience, the divine consciousness has a covenant. You are a part of me and I want you to wake up to the remembrance of who and what you really are. That's the mission. You are on a mission. And that mission will be done sooner or later. <coughs> Another of his parables is he says, How long will thou behold the revolution of the water wheel? He means these mills with water. Put forth thy head, and behold the rapid water that turns it. It's again an injunction to get out of the illusion. He says, how long will you look at the wheel, but not see what moves the wheel? How long will you look at the world, but not see the spirit that enlivens the world? There is no world without the spirit. And everybody is looking at the world. But who is putting their head out to see the actual thing that moves the world. So this statement of Rumi is again a call on the fact to give up illusion and superficiality and to see the real cause of things. The real cause of things is spirit and that's why people who can imagine existence without spirit, they are completely blinded by illusion. And the beautiful call from the heart of Rumi who says choose the love of that living one who is everlasting, who gives thee to drink of the wine that increases life. Rumi loves using parables which are unusual in the Islamic world. One of his favorite being the wine. They don't drink wine in the Sufi and Islamic orthodox environment, and still Rumi uses it like a shocking word. Like people say, What, 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 what the, the Sufis talk about? Wine are they drinking? Let's forbid them, they are heretics, and so on. Yeah, he doesn't mean that literally, he uses it on purposes of provocation. But it's the wine of the mystics. Paramahamsa Yogananda made a commentary on some of the Sufi poems of Rumi Hafiz. Um, Omar Khayyam and others and he has called it, it's a little booklet by Yogananda Paramahansa called The Wine of the Mystics where he says, don't think that the wine of the mystics is literally wine or some other intoxicant or substance. There are people I encountered people who absurdly believe that the spirituality without some intoxicants or substances is not even possible. It's a joke. It's a joke. Most of the spirituality of the world has not used any shamanic chemical substances or anything. You no. Know, and people are producing those in their own brain. The human being is independent and complete. In our enlightenment doesn't depend on some grass or on some plant which exists out there. You know, because then it's like what enlightenment is that? Would you just find the right herb and then you are enlightened? That's Completely absurd. Thus, uh, they call it the wine, the wine of the mystics. And it's also because this state of searching, seeking, puts the human being into a sort of a dizziness. Like if you study the lives of people that have been great mystics, it's like somebody who is in love. If any one of you has experienced being in big-time in love, like really, really being in love, you saw that it gives you a state of mind and an energy and something which you can't even explain. I know people, I have experienced it myself, you know, being in love, and like not sleeping a week in a row, you know, like can't even sleep. The love is keeping you alive and it's pumping you up. That's the wine of the mystics. When you love God, when you have Ishvara Pranidana, when you have aspiration, Like Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was so pumped up. He was an unusually pumped up mystic. Ramakrishna slept between two to four hours per night. Most people would be neurotic. Most people would be burned out. Most people would be wasted if they would sleep two, three, four hours per night. Ramakrishna, it's true, he died at the age of 50. So he did burn out a little bit fast. But he went on like this for 30 years and more of his life. He was almost not sleeping, that man. No, because of the wine. Because of this wine of love, of aspiration of this. Not in everybody it has exactly the same effect uh, in terms of the sleeping patterns. But other things then. Other things. Some people want to be vegan or something. I think it is Rumi somewhere here who uses an analogy. Which was interesting, I never says man's original food is the light of God, animal food is improper for him. I don't know if he speaks about breatharianism, that you should not eat food, you should live with the light of God, or if animal food, that this translation in this brochure is very poor, if animal food actually means non-vegan. And then Rumi is a proponent of veganism. He says, eat vegan, you know, don't eat animal food. Or something. No, it's not clear from this translation, but you see that he addresses many of those issues. So he says, Choose the love of that living one who is everlasting. Choose the love of God. It's like Ruskin said if you don't give God the first place in your life, you don't give him any place. I met people who came to yoga, they were doing something, then being in tantric yoga, they found themselves a relationship which was both satisfying in a sexual way, because Tantric sex has the habit of being unusually satisfying. And on the other hand, they had a spiritual relationship in which things were pure, like he and she, they were detached, they worshipped God together. So it was like a real special relationship. In the Tantric environment, you find men and women who build high quality exquisite relationships. No. And then when the relationship somehow broke, because very often they do, when the relationship broke, then suddenly one of them gave up the spiritual quest. For them, God was their partner. As long as they had a partner, they were okay with seeking for God. But as soon as the partner got stricken by a lightning... And disappeared. Then. So God was not having the first place. No. Their family. Their lover. Their man. Their woman. Their child. Their this. Their that. Those actually held the first place. And that's why Rumi. Is clear here. He says. In a mystical world. Again. Some of you. From the environment of yoga. Might prefer the less mystical approaches. Here with Rumi. Who are full on into a mystical approach and but Rumi clearly speaking from the heart he says choose the love of that living one who is everlasting not the love of Tom, Dick and Harry, the love of Tom, Dick and Harry are surrogates they exist your man or your woman can love you because they get that love from God so when you get loved you are getting loved by proxy no, it's, it's still the divine consciousness that loves you through Tom, Dick and Harry. So don't be short-sighted and think that love is coming from some person in your life or something. Or your cat or your dog or somebody is very loyal and loves you. Love is actually the love of the everlasting one. That, that, the, only the love of the living one, as he calls him here, only that one is everlasting. All the others... You have a wife in this life. Where is your wife or husband from your previous life? Maybe they are not even reborn in the same century with you. Maybe somebody in this room is your husband or wife from a previous life. So what, why is, was that so important? 500 years ago, why was that mattering so much? When today you don't even remember? What's the stability of that? What's the meaningfulness of that? That you do it and then you forget it and you do it and you lose it and you do it and you forget it again. There is something which you will never forget. There is something which never vanishes and that's the real love. That's the real aspiration. That's the real union. So Rumi being conscious of this, of course he tells you, he says, choose the love of the living one who is everlasting who gives you to drink of the wine that increases life. It's a very important statement. The wine, which is the love, the aspiration, the longing, like I live with a goal, I live with a meaning, I'm not aimless in this universe, that this love, this aspiration increases life. Most of these dualistic religions, they say life is God, And death is the devil. The divine consciousness creates life. Therefore the divine consciousness loves life. Favors life. All the religions are preaching that one should increase life. That one should protect life. That life is sacred. Why? Because I didn't make it. It's the Divine Consciousness that made it. It's part of the Dharma. In a cynical way, I can say God has a plan with all this flesh, with all this meat which exists on earth. It's all part of a master plan, of a great plan. We understand it or not, we accept it or not, we like it or not, it's there. And we did not create ourselves, we have been created. Of course, if we are atheistic we just don't put a personal creator we say life created us uh, the universe created us no it's just delegating it is just passing it like i don't want to say that there is a design i don't want to say that there is an intelligence behind it uh, there is something which i can't quite define it is what it is and you know leave me alone because i don't want to put names on it but ultimately Remember, the wine that increases life. It's like the parable of Jesus. Jesus is the giver of life. Even those who were in the tombs, they got revived by Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. Not the death, the life. Like life triumphs. Even when Jesus was put to death... God showed him to be life itself. And Jesus came up again. Because he cannot be dead. And he said, thank you God for giving me this. Because now those who believe me in me, even if they were dead biologically, still they would be alive. No? Life triumphs. This is the wine of the mystics. The wine of the mystics is the one that increases life. It's like the dialogue between fire and ice. Ice is trying to freeze the universe and kill it and fire which we have in the stars and in the body fire is the one which produces life. And the earth is enlightened by the fire from the sun and there is enough heat on earth to have life. If the sun dies, life on earth dies almost immediately. So, life, fire and ice, that always there is a, a, a dialogue, there is a dispute between life, which is spirit, which is non-entropy, and eyes, which is entropy and death. And spirit, Purusha, Shiva, is exactly the spirit, which exactly like the sperm cell. The egg of a woman is a cell relatively as big as this. And the sperm is a little tiny thing, just on the verge of it. And yet it is the sperm which makes the egg blossom and turn into a human being. It's the same here. You don't see Shiva. Shiva is immaterial, transcendental. Everything around here is Shakti. Shakti, 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 Shakti. Prakriti, nature. And yet we need a little bit of spirit. That little bit of spirit Changes the data of the problem totally. So Shiva is like a thief that sneaks at night and gets Shakti pregnant, and then Shakti is alive. That egg becomes a living being because spirit has sneaked itself into it. Spirit is not a big thing. In the world of Prakriti, Purusha is a visitor. It's a visitor. Even geneticians say that the natural chromosomes of the human being are the X chromosome. The Y chromosome which makes males is a rogue chromosome. Geneticians don't know how the heck it appeared. Like we should all be girls. Theoretically by the laws of nature we should all be women. Because the whole world is a big woman. Shakti. So in this woman what do men's do what do men do They are intruders but they can do the work of the spirit So in this way understand some metaphors that the wine of God is the one which truly increases life without this life it's like the fire disappears from the universe and the universe turns into ice and dies spirit keeps matter alive. That's the very, very important function of spirit. We say it in all the polarity workshops in Agama. Shiva has only one function. One function, the function of giving spirit. Everything else in this universe, 99.99999% of what's happening, it's Shakti, 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 Shakti. Intelligence is Shakti. Power is Shakti, long life is Shakti, health is Shakti, courage is Shakti. Everything is Shakti. Any gift or any phenomenon is Shakti. So where is Shiva? Why is Shiva necessary then at all? Because without that little thing which triggers things, there's nothing. There's only death. So the wine, the connection with God, feeds us with the wine, and this wine increases life. It's very important to understand this inflow, this transcendental thing. And I think I'm coming close to the end of the quotes which I selected for us this night. Another one Here. <coughs> When there is water in it, in the canal, only then it is really a canal. The real man is he that has the spirit within him. The same statement. A human being, matter, without spirit, is a zombie, is dead. There cannot be only Shakti. There is no Shakti without Shiva. There is no Shiva without Shakti, says the Tantric tradition. Shakti without Shiva would be like, everything is just the same, only that there is no spirit. Everything is dead. Everything is, doesn't have that particular thing. And Thus, he says it very clearly. A canal is really a canal, only when there is water in it, then it has a use. An empty ditch is nothing. Don't use it for anything. A canal, if you want a canal to be a canal, it has to have water. In the same way, he says, a human being must have spirit. Then, he or she is a real human being. That's our difference from animals. Animals are animals just by being animals. Human beings have consciousness. And the consciousness is what... Changes everything. Because the consciousness says. Should I live like an animal? Or should I stop living like an animal? Should I eat this? Should I not eat this? Should I do this? Should I, should I? How should I use my body and my time on this earth? That's where the revolution starts. Cows cannot say. I go to Mother Teresa and give food to hungry children. Cows are cows are cows. They can do only what cows do. Human beings can do a million things. Including becoming Buddhas. A human being can say, I'm going to sit under this tree until I reach enlightenment. Period. No, animals don't do that. That's a liberty, it's a freedom which is given to the human being. And thus, here Rumi again insists on the value of. And another which resonates with the first one. I just uh, put a few more signs and then I stopped. O thou slave of this world, thou whose spirit is imprisoned, how long will you call yourself lord of the world? That's one of the tragedies of the new age spirituality which is proceeding from the political correctness of North America and Europe and so on, the so-called spirituality, especially after the 1980s or something like this, it started becoming a polite caricature. You know? It's a caricature. Like people are just soothsaying and saying wonderful things. You, know, you are wonderful. You are all very wonderful. Rumi says, oh, you slave of this world. So does Buddha, so do many like they don't say you are wonderful. They say you are in deep shit. No soothsaying, no, you know, it's like he says, you whose, whose spirit is imprisoned. Like how free is your spirit? What can you really do? Oh, I want to read this book instead of reading that book. You know, it's like, what's the big deal? What, what great freedom of spirit did you just prove? No, I, I go to that movie instead of watching that movie. You know, that's the freedom of spirit. So, he says, you whose spirit is in prison, how long will you call yourself Lord of the world? Everybody says, I'm the Lord of the world. I'm me, I'm free. We live in a free world, I do. Rumi says, you're dreaming. You're dreaming big time. Like Wake up, how long will you live in this illusion where you are just lying to yourself that everything is Okay. It's like in this series that in, uh, many of our pupils here in Agama are watching. It as example of a terrible form of manipura. This series called Twenty Four. Well, Jack Bauer, the agent in Twenty Four, he keeps telling in every episode of that series, everything is going to be okay, and people die like flies around him. To whomever he says, don't worry, everything is going to be okay. A bullet goes through their head or something. You know, it's like, are you crazy? You know, you keep lying to yourself saying uh, everything is going, everything is okay. Everything is going to be okay. No, it's not. It's not, but people don't want to admit it because then it would put them into flight or fight, you know, into, into alert mode. And then it's more comfortable to be dead, frozen. Not to be on alert mode. Because the alert mode consumes a lot of energy. It consumes a lot of resources. Then you have to be alive. You have to be motivated. Then we just say everything is going to be alright. But apparently not. Apparently not. No. Buddha says that this planet is a prison. It's like a prison. And people have put beautiful posters on the walls of their cell. And they say my prison is very comfortable. I feel good in this world. But it's a prison. It's still a prison. You are not here by freedom, by free choice. You are here because of karma and because of the obligativity of the process of reincarnation. process of reincarnation is not optional. It's compulsory. Therefore, nobody is here. Maybe Ramakrishna was here because he came to visit us. Maybe Jesus was here because he came to visit us. But 99.9% of the people are not here because they visit. They are, they are here because they are like the inmates in a prison. The inmates can call themselves visitors. But still they can't get out whenever they want. And thus, Rumi is splashing with cold water. And says, you, slave of this world, whose spirit is imprisoned. No, You can't imagine where the spirit and how the spirit can roam. No, How long will you call yourself lord of this world? Because you are not, is a lie, you know. Then he uses the metaphor of the wine in a totally different way, now he means actual wine. He says, Know that every sensual desire is like wine and bang, the bang from India, the marijuana and other stupefying drinks wine desire is like wine and bang it is a veil over the intelligence like because when you are full of desire and this your intelligence is diminished you prefer not to see some things and not you know? so desire is a veil over the intelligence then the intelligence is not sharp and clear anymore as much as you say oh no but i'm very lucid desire already creates a veil and thereby the rational man is stupefied in a state of stupefaction like not thinking clearly, like somebody that is hit with a club over the head and then you are half groggy, half tipsy, half knockout. And the intelligence is veiled and the rational man is stupefied. So here uh, Rumi confirms and echoes the statement of Buddha, that it's all because of desire. If we allow the desires to run over us, then people say, but Swamiji, we are in a tantric school, it's oozing with desire. In tantra, sexuality and other things, they are desires consciously assumed. They are consciously embraced as methods for awakening. They are not endorsed or embraced out of incapacity or out of weakness. They are used because there is a method that claims that can bring your Kundalini up in Sahasrara. And then, why not use such a method? No, but Otherwise, Buddha is right. That's why here it will make you evaluate once more. The parable, one of my gurus quoting some traditional text, used to say that tantra, sexual tantra, is like playing with fire and not getting burned. Are there people who do that? Yes. There are people who juggle with fire and they are skillful and they don't get burned. But unskillful people, when they juggle with fire, they get a lot of burns. Every beginner in tantra in the beginning gets burned a few times because you are playing with the fire and you don't yet know 100% skillfully how to play with this metaphoric fire. So playing with desires and not succumbing to them is a huge art and it shows you once more the seriousness of the issue in Tantra. That there is a powerful, powerful know-how and motivation in this Tantric world. A very interesting statement which I found and which could make me make very, very long comments and I think I'm going to stop on this one is not so much of a loving thing as much as showing an esoteric principle where he quotes directly Muhammad, the Prophet of God. Being a Sufi, he is part of the Islamic religion, and for him, the messenger of God is Muhammad the Prophet. And says Rumi, the Prophet said that anyone who hides his inmost thought will soon attain to the object of his desire. Beautiful, beautiful. Geranda Samhita and some traditional texts, they have exactly the same thing expressed in yoga. They say when you do your tapasya, and you do your things in secret, success will be quickly obtained. And in the moment when you spill the beans, you lost the momentum. Jesus says a similar thing. He says if you fast, and you look miserable, and people ask you, what's happening with you? And you say, "Uh, it's Thursday, I'm fasting. Then this will destroy the effect of your fast. So Jesus says, when you fast, wash yourself, anoint your hair with oil so that you look slick, and play cool, and don't let anybody see that you are fasting. So people will not know. And then nobody is praising you. Because he said, if you tell it to people with a secret subconscious desire that they should acknowledge you and say, wow, you are fasting. You know, like, uh, not everybody who is in Kopangani Nagama Agama is fasting at least once per week. So you must be one of the hardcore ones. No? Then he says, that benefit which you got from the mouth of the neighbors, that's all the benefit you'll get. Because what you were secretly looking for was an inflation of your ego. You wanted your ego to be clapped on the shoulder and say, good job, Bob. You know, that's, you got your, that was your reward. And if you don't get it from human beings, then you get it from God and that's the real reward. So even Jesus says, if you do an act of tapas... Don't brag about it. Don't talk to everybody. Then it will be referred to God. Look what Muhammad, the Prophet, says. Anyone who hides his inmost thought, like intention, you have an intention but you don't declare it, you just know about it and act on it, will soon attain to the object of his desire. Which means, even the Prophet says, don't be a blabbermouth. Don't just la 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 la. This is a weak aspect in the modern world. Everybody wants to talk about everything. No? In esoteric circles, people are very secretive. They plan things, they do things. Yes, it is in the lineages of yoga, it's okay to talk to your guru. Because the guru is confirming if your tapas is okay or not. And if you tell to your guru, my purpose is to reach this, Then the Guru says, it's not good like this. You should better do it like that. Like he can advise you an even better way of doing it. Because he or she has experience about it. But for the rest of the world. Look how beautiful the Prophet says. Anyone who hides his inmost thought. What is your inmost thought? This and that. Whatever your inmost thought can be. I want to become a saint and I want to reach the kingdom of heaven. You don't put it on your t-shirt. You don't advertise about it. no. You you know and God knows. And maybe your guru knows if you are in a lineage like this. The so one who does this will soon attain to the object of his desire. There is a very great power in the secrecy. The secrecy is acting like a contraction, like a sort of a external pressure. It's like you put a bomb in a sealed container. When it explodes, it produces a huge pressure. It amplifies the effect inside there. No? So that's why it's the secrecy is the one which gives incredible efficiency. Many tantric rituals, practices, especially the universe of tantra and kundalini yoga in India and in Tibet, it has been very, very secretive. These people were not open. Even right now, the, your pupils, your colleagues from the TTC was asking me about, I don't know which lecture, which is supposed to be secret. And you no, know, they were a bit provoked by it. You know? And I told them, you know, like, there are some things which are meant to be like this because exactly building up the secret builds up the power of realization. It's Maybe it's just a simple psychology. But funnily enough, it does have effects. The yogis have seen that it works. And then they just do it. They just act upon it. Enough for tonight. I had a couple of statements more, but uh, you got the frequency. Some of these statements, they are not some of the most loving ones. I have verses and poems from Rumi which are uh, giving you goosebumps, you know, like really, really shattering. This I chose more calm statements from Rumi, not his devotional poems. I just chose teachings from Rumi where you can see a little bit of the heart of this Sufi mysticism and some of the principles and teachings which are given there. Because, of course, Rumi, when he sings poems of love, we, you, I, hope, I hope you have all heard some of the poems of Love of Rumi and have seen the beauty, the intensity, the freshness of his love. But that combined with what I read tonight gives a bit of an insight in another tradition. Two weeks ago I spoke about some Christian esoteric things. Now I shared with you a part of the universe of Rumi. If everything goes as planned, I intend to do something from the Hindu bhakti and mysticism next time um, and then either return to the study of the Upanishads which I have left open or uh, to our survey of the words of Jesus from the Gospels. That will probably keep me busy in all this calm season in this autumn. I will let you know as we go through each session where this is going. With this we have finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining. And again, as I always say, if what I say in a satsang, because the satsangs have no questions and answers, if what I say in a satsang is provoking you in one way or another in terms of curiosity, aspiration, more knowledge, then please write it down. And next week, when we have QA, you can ask me in the QA. Those are the places where you can address me questions. With this, we have finished for tonight.